Good morning. My name is Mike Gakey. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is uh, just my privilege to be with you this morning to carry on the study of the book of Esther. We are in our second week, um, a, a study that we have subtitled um, The Unseen Sovereign. This is a very unique book, as we talked about last week, in, 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 the, in the context of its place in the Bible. And um, it's been a, God has brought you full a study that I've had this week, and probably one that God has brought you all to my mind more often than any sermon in a long time as I've prepared, and I'm looking forward to getting into chapter two with you today. Esther, if you want to start turning there, Esther, we will be in chapter two. Esther is in the Old Testament. Um, I call it a BP. It's a before Psalms book. So if you find and open your book to the middle, you'll find Psalms or Proverbs maybe. If you go to the left, Esther is just a couple books away from Psalms. It is right between Nehemiah and Job. So the Old Testament, where we are in this series, is, is uh, broken into several different types of books. But, but Esther is a book, uh, what we call a narrative. A narrative is just a story. It's primarily a story about God. It's what God did um, to and through his people. In the Old Testament... We're, we're, we're talking about what God did um, and his relationship with his people under the old covenant, the covenant of the law. When we get to the New Testament, it's about what God, um, it's, it's a relationship of God and his people under the new covenant, the covenant of grace and salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So here we are in the Old Testament. We're going to read a story about um, a poor Jewish girl who God uses to save his people But this is not primarily a story about Esther. It's a story about God. It is a story about this unseen sovereign, the unseen king of this story. As we study Esther today, we're going to see um, Ahasuerus again. And we're going to, I'm going to call him Xerxes because I think that's a cooler name. That's the Greek version. We're going to meet Mordecai and Esther in today's chapter. And every one of these characters are human. They have failures, and they have faults, and they have flaws. None of them that we read about today are the hero of this story. God is the hero of this story, and the hero of every story in God's word. And though he is unseen, he is the sovereign designer and facilitator of all that happens in this book, and I love what that means for us. So here we are in Esther 2. Now last week, and I want to encourage you to listen to Brian's sermon from last week. It sets a great stage for this book and for this series. But we were introduced to this book, and it's interesting because it is unique in that it, it never mentions God by name. There are no um, outright dramatic miracles in this book. Today we see a lot of actions, but we only see them from the surface. We don't see any motives of the people in this book. Lord, we don't see any praise or condemnation of the actions of of the people in this book. Ryan mentioned last week that sometimes our lives feel more like Exodus, I mean, more like Esther, where where God seems to sort of be absent. So sometimes our our lives feel more like Esther than, than, say, the book of Exodus. Exodus, as a book, is full of dramatic displays of God's power. There are dramatic instances of God leading and proclaiming. There are clear proclamations from God of sin and error and disappointment, but also of obedience and favor and righteousness. In the book of Exodus, God is fully at work with lots of drama right out in the open. 
But in Esther, God is still fully at work, but he is fully at work behind the scenes. And we, as God's people, have to remember that God is both of those things. Sometimes he is at work behind the scenes, and sometimes he is at work center stage. The unseen sovereign, the one behind the scenes, is not an absent God. He is as active behind the scenes as if he was moving mountains or raining down frogs or parting seas. He is always in control. He is always acting in the furtherance of his perfect will and his perfect plan. So last week, we met Xerxes, the Greek version of the name Ahasuerus. He was this king over this enormous Persian empire, and he was really, really a pompous and ridiculous king. He had unlimited power and vast wealth, and he used it in almost silly ways. It, it almost makes fun of him in chapter 1. We see him throw this huge party, and then he gets drunk, and he summons his queen, Vashti, to come, and basically he wants just to parade her around so he could show her off to his minions. And she knows what he's going to do, and she, she knows it is wrong, and she simply says no. Well, Xerxes was not used to having uh, anyone tell him no, and he became furious with her and worried about what that would mean for, for his subjects for, throughout the kingdom. So he asks his eunuchs what he should do, and they say, you should banish her, and you should find a better queen. Essentially, you should find a queen who will do what you tell her to do. And that's where we find ourselves today in chapter 2 of Esther. One thing before we start to read this, though, I, I think that sometimes if you've been in church, if you, if you know this story at all, you, you see Esther and Mordecai as biblical heroes. And this may be a spoiler alert for some of you, but they do become biblical heroes. They, they end up being used by God in and, and, and their faithfulness in a dramatic way. But really, if you look at this chapter, there's a whole lot of moral ambiguity and really possible spiritual compromise in Esther and Mordecai that we see in chapter 2. And it's important for us to acknowledge that because I think it makes what follows chapter 2 even more powerful. Because at the end of today, at the end of chapter 2, Esther becomes queen. But this is not a fairy tale of a poor Jewish girl who finds her prince charming this is a hard story. It is a story of the objectification of women. It is the story of predatory men who value these women only for their physical beauty, and then they become victims of these men. We see that in here, for some, fear may be more powerful than their faith in God. But in the middle of this very harsh chapter that is really full of more questions than answers, honestly, what we are given is a hindsight view of God at work in the midst of sin and suffering because we know what comes next, those who love him. God, as he promised us, working good in every circumstance for those who love him. This is the ugly reality. What we see here is really the ugly reality of a world that is marred by sin and is the world that we still live in today. And in this, we can be encouraged that God is not surprised by sin. God is not shocked by the horrors that we face. God never checks out. Nothing surprises him. And in the middle of all of the horror, God is working good. 
And I believe that that simple truth is one of those simple truths of God's word that will see you through the hard times that God may have for you. So let's go through this story, this narrative of Esther. We're starting in verse 2. So verse 2, chapter 1 says this, After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. So, so to get a little context of where we are in the storyline, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 3, you see that Vashti is actually removed from uh, her queenship. She's removed as queen in the third year of his reign. If you look ahead to chapter 2, verse 16, we see that Esther is made queen in the seventh year of his reign. So between chapter 1, between the banishment of his queen Vashti, and between chapter 2, the establishment of Esther as queen, we have roughly three to four years period of time. Now what's interesting is what happened during that time. We know this extra biblically from the history of Herodotus, who's really like the father of history. He writes that during this time, this king, probably emasculated by all that happened with his queen standing up to him, wanting to prove himself, wanting to expand his kingdom, he, he amasses the greatest army known in the world at that time and marches from Persia to Greek to destroy and, humili- and defeat the Greeks. But you know what happens? He is destroyed and humiliated in that fight. He loses That's what happens in this period between chapter 1 and chapter 2. If you remember, several years ago, there was a movie called 300. Don't watch it. It was rated R. But but that movie is the story of, of Xerxes going to try to defeat the Greeks and being defeated himself. Thousands of years later, we're still talking about that defeat. Herodotus describes Xerxes' life after that defeat This is what he says. It was one of extreme sensual indulgence. So very soon after this defeat, we we see Esther being drawn into this world. There's this miserable, and his mind is drawn, defeated man who is intent again on proving himself in some way, and his mind is drawn, drawn back to Vashti and her humiliation of him, and the men around him begin to work out a plan to lift his spirits. Verse 2. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be brought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Ashti. This pleased the king. And he did so. This is not a Meghan and Prince Harry story. This is not a Cinderella story. This is really like some dystopic uh, bachelor Persia version. They are going all over the kingdom. They are looking for the prettiest virgins to bring Brack back. They're going to groom them for one night with the king. And then the king will decide who to give the crown and to make queen. But this version, this isn't people vying for this honor. These girls are removed from their families. Their lives are essentially taken away from them. They were young. They were virginal. They were put into a place of weakness and powerlessness, and they were forced to perform. These young girls were in many ways enslaved. So we have this crazy decree, and then we meet Mordecai and Esther, starting in verse 5. 
Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So some things we see here in the introduction of Mordecai and Esther. It's important right here that Mordecai is identified as a Jew because God may not be named in this book, but his people are named. And this is really where God makes his appearance in this story. Mordecai's Jewish line was strong. And when it says he's a Benjaminite, that puts him in the lineage of King Saul. And we see here that he was in exile. When he's in exile, what that means, and and you need to understand this part of the story, really. So way back in Daniel, we read about the book of Daniel. We read about a king named Nebuchadnezzar, an evil king who came to power. And essentially, he came to power really at God's allowing and in, because God's people had disobeyed him and, and sinned, they, Nebuchadnezzar uh, sent them into captivity and into exile in Babylon. So they've been in exile for all this time. Well, later, a king named Cyrus, who is actually Xerxes' grandfather, he was a, he was a good king. He was not a worshiper of God, but, but he was a good, honorable ruler And he decreed that God's people were free to leave Persia and go back to Jerusalem. So when we see that Mordecai was still there, it means that he chose not to go back to Jerusalem when he had the opportunity to do so. Jerusalem is where God's people resided. It's the promised land. It's where they had a temple and where the presence of God would dwell and they could worship God and dwell with God together with God's people in the presence of God. Many people did return back. But for whatever reason... Mordecai did not. There was nothing found in the book of Ezra. In fact, the temple and the city had to be rebuilt. Those stories are found in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. But for whatever reason, Mordecai and his family chose to stay in exile. And that's what's important for us. The reason why, not so important. What is important is that they were still living in exile. God's people, Jews, living in exile. Being in exile created a risk It's very easy for them, it would have been very easy for them living in this culture to be fully assimilated into that culture. It means to lose all the vestiges of what it meant to be Jewish and their culture as Jews. Esther here is referred to by both names. She's referred to by her Jewish name, Hadassah, and her Persian name, Esther. And curiously, we'll talk more about what that may mean mean later because that's an interesting that she is identified by two names, Mordecai only by one and not his Jewish name. Esther's an orphan. And in that culture, identified as a virgin, she was very likely a teenager, very young. Mordecai, her cousin, has adopted and raised her as his own. A virtuous and honorable act. As you go on in this chapter, verses 8 through 11, we see how the king's order, this edict, was played out for Mordecai and Esther. Esther was seen and obviously noted as both virginal or unmarried, but also direction of heaven. And she was taken into Xerxes' palace, and she was put under the instruction of Haggai. 
Now, how many of you have seen the Hunger Games? Any of you know the story of the Hunger Games? When you think of Haggai, think of Effie Trinket or Sinna. His whole job was to, in the Hunger Games, they were to groom Katniss Everdeen to be appealing to the masses so they made her more beautiful and more feminine. That was his job with Esther and all these other girls. He was to ready them for their night with the king. And it says that Esther pleased him and won his favor and he gave her cosmetics and food and even seven maids to tend to her. In verse 10, we see that it says, um, Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. She kept her Jewishness, the fact that she was a Jew, secret. And we also read that Mordecai walked in front of the harem every day to learn how Esther was doing. It goes on to say that, that there was a year of beautifying, 12 months of being made to look good and being made to smell good, and then she would get her night with the king. Let's start reading again in verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. After her night with the king, whatever happened in there, Xerxes liked it, and Esther is made queen. We read in verse 20 again that she continues to hide her Jewish heritage as Mordecai had commanded her. We also read soon after this time, Mordecai has now shifted. He used to wait at the gate of the harem. Now he's waiting at the king's gate. He is still somehow, and for whatever reason, uh, following Esther. And he uncovers a plot against Xerxes, which he, instead of allowing this really bad king to just die per the plot, somehow he communicates that plot to Esther, and the plot is foiled. And Mordecai is revealed, Mordecai's revealing of the plot is then recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So here we have Esther being made queen. Now you can read this, and if you've been in the church, you may have a lot of ideas about what all of this means, but there really is a lot of moral ambiguity in this book, and I think we need to address that so we don't just assume things about why things happened in this book. It's famous, this chapter is famous for its moral ambiguity. For example, there's a question, why did Mordecai and his family not return to Jerusalem? They had the chance to leave and to go back and be a part of God's people, living with them. It could have been simply that there, because there was nothing to return to. But we read stories of the other people that returned and undertook the labor of rebuilding Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple. Did he just not want to do that work? Or it also could have been that they were seeking to, to plant roots and they were wanting to seek the welfare of Susa, like Jeremiah told them to do in Jeremiah 29. Maybe they just enjoyed the comfort and the excitement of living in a city like Susa. Maybe they had financial motives. We don't know. 
I wondered as I read this, why didn't Mordecai protect Esther? I mean, if I, if the government is, is taking young women, I'm going to do everything I can to protect my two girls. I'm going to hide them if I can. I'm going to fight anyone who tries to drag them away. So what were his motives in that? Was, was he hoping for riches in it? Did he, in essence, make her go? Because we see clearly that she followed his lead. Or did he simply have no choice? What does his continued presence at the gate, first the harem gate and then the king's gate, what does that tell us? Was he worried about her? Was he simply trying to coach her? We look at Esther in this. We wonder, she obviously was, was a timid and passive girl. She, she, she does what other people tell her to do. She did what Mordecai told her to do in hiding her faith. She did what Haggai told her to do, and he said you know, only, she only took into the king's chamber for her night with him what Haggai told her to take. Why was she like that? Why didn't she stand up against that? Why didn't she own her Jewishness? Why did she eat the food that was very, not, like, very likely not um, up to Jewish dietary code and standards? Why did she allow herself to be taken in and sleep with and marry a non-Jew? We don't know why. But, but I think we can look at her and we can imagine she was this young girl. She was an orphan in that culture, likely even more vulnerable than the other young women. We see Mordecai was her father figure. Haggai was an authority figure. Perhaps she was simply being obedient to her authority figures. We don't know. There's nothing wrong with that. Maybe she was not raised by Mordecai to observe the Jewish law. There's no evidence at this point that anyone knew they were a Jewish family. Maybe they had completely assimilated into the culture around them. I think Mordecai's actions in chapter 3 indicate otherwise, but we really don't know. At the end of the day, Esther may have just been a girl with a tragic story who had not yet found her voice. But the reality is, in, in this whole story of chapter 2, we know nothing of how Mordecai or Esther made the decisions to do what they did. But I promise you, after studying for this, that hasn't stopped hundreds of Bible scholars from making a lot of guesses. But we don't know. We don't know if they sought counsel from God. We don't know if they had impure, ulterior motives. We don't know if they were just scared. We don't know if they feared for their lives. We don't know those things. Yet God gave us this chapter. And I believe in this chapter, because we have the whole story to look ahead to, I believe we see two very powerful things about God in this chapter. The first one is this. God works even through the evil or foolish plans of men. We see this, this really horrible story. We see this treatment of Vashti who's banished because she says no. We see this terrible bachelor Persia plan, this slash Hunger Games plan. And the whole thing is horrible. Yet in it, we see God's plan for the salvation of people working itself out because ultimately Esther will be responsible for the saving of thousands of people. Even things that look on the surface to be horrible and evil, or maybe we don't even need to go to horrible and evil, even things that just look confusing and worthless, those things are part of a of God working out his plan 
for the joy of his people and for his own glory. If you remember the story of Joseph way back in Genesis, you remember he was um, kidnapped by his brothers. They sold him into slavery. And they came, and then he goes to prison, and, and all these horrible things happen to him, and then ultimately he becomes their savior in many ways. And they come to him, and they're so sorry, and they're afraid he's going to kill them, and, and he forgives them, and he says this, you, says this to his brothers, that you meant evil for me, but God meant it for good. Joseph knew that his enslavement, his wrongful imprisonment, he knew that all of those things were part of God's plan to save many. I know that I can look at so much in my life. I can look at my outright sin, my foolish decisions, but I can also look at circumstances, things that happened to me that were no fault of my own, completely out of my control, and I can still see God working out his will in the middle of things that look horrible on the surface. And sometimes these things are not easy to explain. It's hard to understand how someone's pain or illness or even death can be used by God for his glory and for the growth of his kingdom. It's hard to see how financial ruin or collapse can be the impetus for a changed life and a new redemptive or charitable view of money. It's hard sometimes to see how a lost job can open the door to a greater job. Even the consequences of sin, how they often redirect us from lukewarm Christianity to a committed Christianity that has an amazing impact for Christ. These are all hard to understand. I even thought this week as we, as we saw stories over and over uh, related to John McCain's death, we saw the interactions and the comments from people at all places on the political spectrum, and I wondered, could God use the death of John McCain to help move us into a more civil, cooperative time politically. Sometimes God allows us to see the end good that comes from something bad, but sometimes he does not. But we can trust God that no matter how things look for us now, even the evil things we see happening in the world and, in the, and the inconvenient, frustrating, hurtful things that might be happening in our lives, no matter what, God is in control. And no matter what, God is good. When my kids were in school in Texas, they rounded, the teachers would round up the students. They'd all be loud. And the way they would get them focused is the teacher would stand up and say, God is good. And the kids would respond all the time. And then the teacher would say, all the time. And the kids would respond, God is good. Evil is true. God works good even through the evil, foolish plans of men. The second thing we see here that I think is just so um, beautiful to me is that God is writing the perfect story of your life. As we look at Esther 2, with all of its moral ambiguities, so many questions that we don't really have answers to, I had to fight the urge to answer those questions, to try to be like all the other biblical scholars that thought they figured it out. And I just wanted to look back and I wanted to see what is happening here apart from all that moral ambiguity. And I realized God was simply working out the details of the story of Mordecai and of Esther in his own way and in his own time. Last week, Ryan reminded us that God is at work for the good of his people even when we cannot see it. All that is about to happen in Mordecai's life, in Esther's life, 
following chapter 2, all that we know of Mordecai and Esther is completely unknown to them at this time. What they likely knew was sadness, fear, concern, surprise, so much the unknown that was, was before them. For me, I, I watch Mordecai, his constant vigil, and I have this sense of hopelessness and helplessness that Mordecai must have felt. You can look at Esther, and it's almost like this, you wonder, watching the way she lived, did she have this resignation at this moment that she was to live a life in control of other people? But what we know, because we know how the story ends, is that God was active and at work, and he was writing the story of their lives exactly as he had planned it. Listen to what Psalm 139 says about God and you. It is so beautiful and so powerful. David in this psalm is speaking to God and he says this, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were being formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Nothing in your life today is by chance. Nothing. God is not unsure of what to do. God is not your co-pilot. He is not your co-author. God is writing your story. Every single bit of it is purposeful and intentional and planned by God. And it was done before you were even born for His glory and for your joy. One writer that I loved how he said this, he described God as using His subtle, soft hand of providence through the circumstances of our lives. In this moment, your living story is being written. And sometimes we get bogged down in those circumstances. We spend all our time trying to figure out why this happened or why that happened or why this isn't happening. One of my favorite Bible stories is the story of the man born blind in John 9. Everyone in that, that story begins with the disciples asking Jesus, I want to, who sinned that this man was born blind? Somebody had to be at fault for this, right? Did he sin? Did his parents sin? And Jesus says, no one's sin caused his blindness. He was born blind so that my power might be displayed in his life. There are so many things in our lives that we may hate or we may regret, but every element is a part of the story that God is writing of your life. A story for the Christ follower that is ultimately for a far greater eternal purpose than you may ever be able to see. A story that is designed to display the power of God, maybe in Esther ways and maybe in Exodus ways. God's sovereignty can be hard to understand sometimes. This very real tension be between His will, His perfect will, and our respons responsibility to live lives faithful to God. But even when we fail in living how God has called us to live, even when the paths we choose to follow cause pain and consequences or the paths we choose to follow grieve the Holy Spirit inside of you, God is redeeming those things for a greater purpose in the story of our lives. 
Even when our wandering causes us or him pain, God is always with us. Never, it says this in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, it says this in the New Testament in Hebrews, he never leaves or forsakes us. Our God is a committed God. And you may have found trouble, or trouble may have found you, but he will walk you through it. He may not get you out of it. He may not, it is a part, but he will walk you through it, and he will use it. It is a part of your story. A story that when, when Jesus enters it, becomes a story of hope and love and life and grace and justice and kindness and victory and freedom. Don't run from God and the story he's writing through your life. It's a story that he may just be writing to save someone else's life. And in the same way that we will see him use the story of Esther. We know the end of the story of Esther. We see them, we will see them in the coming chapter stand firmly and boldly for God and his people. And we will see them literally save thousands of lives and see thousands of girls, including several in this church, be named Esther after this Esther. But curiously, I've never met a Mordecai. This story has a great ending. We may not know how the circumstances of today might work out for us, but we can trust God's trustworthy character. No matter what, he is gracious. No matter what, he is merciful. No matter what, he is faithful and committed to completing, as Paul said in Philippians 1.6, he is faithful to completing the good work that he started in you. No matter what, even though in your sin you may be missing the joy of what he wants to do in you, he is writing your story today. You may not see it because you are looking everywhere else for what he wants to give you. But if you will turn back to him today, you will see him at work in you. And there is nowhere that is more joy-filled or more secure than that place. We do know, not know how the issues we are facing today will play out in our lives. We do know the end of our story. For the Christ follower, all stories share a common ending. Eternity at the throne of Christ where it says in Revelation that there will be no more pain and no more tears. Our story as Christ followers ends with eternity because Jesus died and rose again so that we might live abundantly with him here on earth and eternally with him in heaven. If you're here this morning and you do not have a relationship with God through Christ, my greatest prayer is that you would be drawn to what it means to have a relationship with him and to have him in your life. I can talk all day long about God's goodness, but you will not discover it for yourself until you begin and enter a relationship with him. For Mordecai and Esther, their place in God's family came through their birth into God's family as Jews. But under the new covenant that we have with God through Christ, we are not born into Christianity. We are not born into salvation. We are, this is a big word, regenerated That means we are reborn into Christianity through faith in Christ. It's by grace we are saved. It is not by works. We enter God's family through faith. 
through our realization of our need for a Savior and our surrender to Jesus as our Savior and our Lord. And if you're sitting in this room today and you don't know what I'm talking about or you have questions, we would love to visit with you about that. God wrote the story of Esther and he is writing your story. He is crafting every part of it. And no matter what your story has had thus far, no matter at this moment where you sit and everything that lies behind you, the rest of your story, if you surrender your life to Jesus and understand that he loves you and cares for you and is working that out, no matter what your past is, the future of your story can be, it may not be free from struggle, but it can be free from shame. It can be free from guilt. It can be free from hopelessness. Your story may be full of, of difficult, scary twists and turns, but with God as the author of your story, it never needs to be void of joy or purpose. He wants to be the hero of your story too. And I pray that you would revel this morning in the, re in the, in the rescue that he either has done for you if you know him or the rescue that he will do if you surrender your life to him. No matter what, no matter what you're going through this morning, God has designed your life for good.